This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. And on today's show, in and out of love. Yeah, so I was out on a date. And let's start with a story about falling in love. It was one of those dates where um, initially I didn't know it was a date. This is Mandy Len Katrin, who's written a lot about love. He had presented the idea of going to the art gallery so casually, <laughs> like he mentioned it via Instagram, um, which... <laughs> Um, I think suggests something about how, how casual it was. I really thought, oh, we're just two people going to look at some art together. But pretty soon, Mandy realized it was a date. Yeah, it was a date. So Mandy and Mark, that's her date. Mark said to me, do you want to go grab a beer? And I thought, okay, sure. And then we started talking about love and relationships. And he said, you know, I have a, this theory that you could fall in love with anyone. And if that's true, like, how do you choose someone? And I said, oh, yeah, that's that's an interesting theory. There's actually this study that I read about one time where these scientists tried to create romantic love in the lab. And I, I was pretty skeptical, but it sounds interesting. And then just on this, like, impulse, I feel like I'm pretty shy on dates. Hmm. But I was feeling brave, and I said, oh, you know, I've always wanted to try it. And immediately he was like, great, let's do it. And so we did. Right there and then? Right there in the bar. <laughs> you decided to turn your date into a science experiment? Mm-hmm. Yep. We spent several, <laughs> the next several hours just sliding my phone back and forth across the table, taking turns, asking the questions. The questions. 36 questions, to be exact. And, and let me pause to say that some of you may have heard about these. Mandy wrote about the questions for The New York Times a couple of years ago. Number one. Given the choice of anyone in the world, whom would you want as a dinner guest? This is Arthur Aaron. I'm a research professor at Stony Brook University, and I do research on relationships. And Arthur, he wrote the 36 questions as part of that research. Number four, what would constitute a perfect day for you? These questions were designed as a laboratory procedure to create closeness Usually not romantic closeness, just a sense of connection with another person quickly. And the questions do this by getting increasingly more and more personal. Name three things you and your partner appear to have in common. If a crystal ball could tell you the truth, what is your most treasured memory? What is your most terrible memory? What roles do love and affection play in your life? Do you feel your childhood was happier than most other people? Tell your partner what you like about them saying things that you might not say to someone you've just met. Number 29. People pretty consistently report feeling a sense of closeness with whoever they do this with, um, which is not the same thing as falling in love, but it's kind of the, it's not unrelated, let's say. It's, it's one of the essential steps in that process. So Mandy and Mark take that step. And for the next several hours, they get to know really intimate details about each other's lives. And then, 
it was over. And I remember thinking, like, wow, that was, like, super intense. We just had this, like, deeply vulnerable, intimate experience, and then suddenly we needed to leave. Like, we needed to end the date. Yeah. And I remember just thinking, like, it was so weird to have small talk with someone after telling them these details about my entire life. Yeah, I just remember walking along and feeling like I had nothing to say to him. Um, But we went out again. So, yeah, it worked out pretty well. And let's see. Next, I guess two weeks. Two weeks, we'll celebrate our five-year anniversary. Meet someone new. Ask each other some questions. And bam, love and wedding bells. Of course, it's not that simple. Mark and Mandy's love certainly wasn't destined. But Mandy says those 36 questions... They mattered. Like, if you were to ask my partner, Mark, would we have fallen in love if we hadn't done the 36 questions? Um, I think his answer would be maybe, probably even. If you were to ask me that, I am less sure. (laughs) Um, I didn't know him well, but I could see how much his friends seemed to really admire him. And I thought, oh, this is a good sign. Like, this would be a good person to fall in love with. And doing the questions really sort of, like, convinced me that, in fact, he was, like, a really decent human being and was worth bothering to get to know. And so I think that mattered. You know, we think, I mean, through a variety of influences, whether it's media or literature or just human interaction, I think most of us believe that love is not something you can necessarily control or engineer or that it's one of those things that kind of happens. You let fate take you by the hand. Yeah. But this whole concept suggests that, that that isn't true. Yeah, it's not entirely true. Like there are real things that are happening inside our brains and, and inside our bodies when we fall in love. There is this whole biological component. But we also have these cultural scripts about how love is supposed to work And having spent a decade of my life writing about these things, like the thing that it's left me with is the notion that we have a lot more say over our experiences in romantic love than our cultural stories would lead us to believe. We often think of love as this mysterious, unknowable force, something that happens to us on a timescale beyond our control. But what if we could control it? What if we could decide when we fall in love? And even when we might need to fall out of love? So on the show today, we're going to explore ideas about falling in and out of love. And for Mandy Lynn Katrin, she argues our understanding of how love works begins with how we talk about it, the words and the metaphors we use. Here's more from Mandy on the TED stage. So most of us will probably fall in love a few times over the course of our lives. And falling is really the main way that we talk about that experience. And I don't know about you, but when I conceptualize this metaphor, what I picture is straight out of a cartoon. Like there's a man, he's walking down the sidewalk. Without realizing it, he crosses over an open manhole and he just plummets into the sewer below. And I picture it this way because falling is not jumping. Falling is accidental, it's uncontrollable, 
It's something that happens to us without our consent. And I would like to argue that many of the metaphors we use to talk about love, maybe even most of them are a problem. So in love, we fall. We're struck, we are crushed, we swoon, we burn with passion. Love makes us crazy and it makes us sick. Our hearts ache and then they break. So our metaphors equate the experience of loving someone to extreme violence or illness. <laughs> I mean, why is, is, is love, at least in popular literature and in our culture, just so associated with pain and suffering? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's because it can cause us lots of pain and suffering. Like, I think when you are first in romantic love, you can't stop thinking about the person. You always want to be with them. Like, you do feel really high when you're together. It does feel really sad when you have to be apart for a few days. Like, those metaphors make sense. But I think the fact that we position ourselves as so passive suggests there's nothing we can do about this. And that we should take these feelings as a sign that this is a meaningful connection and we should act on them. Like, if we think that love is supposed to be painful or, or it's supposed to cause us suffering... And we're supposed or, to be crazy in love. <laughs> yeah, if we think about it that way, you know, it is very easy to get into relationship dynamics that I think are really unhealthy or maybe even rationalize being in a relationship that is abusive. Um, so I actually think the way we talk about this and the way we think about it really matters and that there are real-world stakes for it. So if we understand that this is a, this is like the wrong way to frame love, like if our metaphors are off and our language is off, um, which I mean, we're ta talking about like hundreds of years of, of yeah. literature. It's, and it's deeply entrenched. It's in poetry. It's just, right, it's super entrenched. Um, how do we begin to even reframe the way we talk about love? Yeah, you know, I think if we think about a relationship as an opportunity for kindness and generosity, as something that we have some say over. So in their book, The Metaphors We Live By, linguists Mark Johnson and George Lakoff suggest a really interesting solution to this dilemma. In my talk, I talk about the metaphor that Lakoff and Johnson suggest, which is the collaborative work of art. Love is a collaborative work of art. And I really like this way of thinking about love. Linguists talk about metaphors as having entailments, which is essentially a way of considering all the implications of or ideas contained within a given metaphor. And Johnson and Lakoff talk about everything that collaborating on a work of art entails. Effort, compromise, patience, shared goals. We think of art often as like beautiful or inspiring, but it also means like love requires effort. Right? Like you can't make a work of art without putting time and energy and critical thought and attention into it. So I think it puts us in a much more empowered position, right? Like it's not something that happens to you. It's something you do together. It's not something that comes easily. It's going to be challenging at times, but it's something that you get to decide what it looks like. You have some say over it. Yeah, you have to, you have to be intentional about it. Yeah. And actually, Mark and I have tried to build that into our relationship in like really intentional ways. Like, oh, we're making something together. How do we want it to work? What do we want it to look like? 
So like we have a relationship contract and the word contract tends to sound really controversial to people. Um, it is not a legally binding document. It's more like just a statement of our intentions. And we kind of sit down together every year and say, okay, like, what do we want this relationship to be like going forward? And we adjust it. And it covers everything from who does which chores around the house to like what our goals are together as a couple and steps we can take to support each other. Um, it's such a simple thing, but like to me, it makes it feel like this relationship isn't something that I've gotten myself stuck in because I had strong feelings for this person one day. It's like, it's a thing that we're making together. That's Mandy Lynn Catron. She's a writer and a lecturer at the University of British Columbia. You can find her two talks at TED.com. On the show today, In and Out of Love. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Trader Joe's, whose podcast Inside Trader Joe's takes you on a journey through world cuisines, innovative takes on frozen foods, fresh approaches to plants and flowers, new ways to think about produce, and everything you ever wanted to know about wine and cheese. And then some. You'll find new, innovative, astonishing, and fascinating episodes of Inside Trader Joe's wherever you get your podcasts. More at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram. Thanks also to Capital One. With the Capital One Walmart Rewards Card, you can earn 5% back at Walmart online, 2% at Walmart in-store, restaurants and travel, and 1% everywhere else. When you want all that, you need the Capital One Walmart Rewards Card. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. I know we'd all love the holidays to be this happy, stress-free, joyful time. But let's be real, that is not always the case. NPR's Life Kit is answering your holiday questions and helping you navigate family dynamics all season long. New episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. Listen and subscribe to Life Kit All Guides. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about falling in and out of love. We are playing with one of the most powerful brain systems that ever evolved. I mean, this is a survival mechanism. It evolved millions of years ago, and I'm not surprised that people suffer in love. This is Helen Fisher. I'm a biological anthropologist, and I study love. And Helen is actually the chief science advisor to Match.com, and one of the country's leading experts on love. All right, um, let me just ask you about love. I mean, I know I'm, I don't mean to sound reductive. It's much more complicated. But can we say there's a place in, in our brain where love or feelings of love resides? There's a place in our brain where all feelings uh, reside. Every time you think something, do something, feel something, there's something going on in the brain. I came to believe, really, that we've evolved three distinctly different brain systems from mating and reproduction. One is the sex drive. Second is feelings of intense romantic love. And the third is feelings of deep attachment. And I became quite convinced that um, all three resided in the brain and that if I looked, I could find some of the brain circuits of romantic love and feelings of attachment. And according to Helen, romantic love and attachment aren't even feelings. They're drives. 
meaning they fulfill a biological need. In fact, the basic brain region that um, generates the feelings of intense romantic love, that factory lies at the base of the brain, right near a factory that orchestrates thirst and hunger. Thirst and hunger keep you alive today. Romantic love enables you to focus your mating energy on a particular individual and drive your DNA into tomorrow. So I and my brain scanning partner, Lucy Brown, have come to believe that romantic love is a survival mechanism. Hmm. So... So if love is primarily a drive, right, um, it's driven by biology, right? Like, how how much agency do we actually have in that process? Well, I think that uh, we have a lot of agency. We're constantly making um, choices. I mean, you know, we tend to fall in love with somebody who has the same socioeconomic background, same general level of intelligence, same general level of good looks. But you can walk into a room and everybody's from your background and good looks, and you don't fall in love with all of them. We make choices. And, uh, you know, we carry in our head what I call a love map, an unconscious list of what you're looking for in a partner. And when the timing is right and somebody comes by who fits within that um, general uh, perspective of who you're looking for, you can instantly trigger that brain circuitry for romantic love and be off to the races. I mean, it's, it's amazing because there is both, I mean, there's this, there's a drive. Um, our brains, as you say, are smart and they figure out the person that it thinks we will be most compatible with. But then we also have agency too. Like we also can engineer it. There's no question about it. The, uh, one of the problems, when you, once you've fallen madly in love, uh, basic brain regions linked with decision-making uh, begin to shut down. Hmm. And so you can overlook a lot. Oh, he's so cute. It doesn't matter. He has a wife. He'll divorce her. Oh, she's just so charming. She'll get over her anger problem. So what you got to do is make your choices just like you said. You've got to use that agency before you fall in love. You know, if you begin to fall for somebody who you know is lying to you, the way out is through the door. We've evolved a huge cerebral cortex. We can overcome our drives. I mean, people have a drive to eat sugar. We can say no thank you. But uh, you've got to realize who you are, <laughs> understand your assets and your, your defects, and cognitively think of uh, workarounds. We can do this. Does our brain chemistry make it harder to fall out of love than to fall in love? It's extremely difficult to do. Um, you know, we, I and my colleagues have put uh, 15 people who had just been rejected in love into a brain scanner. <laughs> and we ended up finding that uh, those people who were still madly in love with somebody who had just dumped them... Um, they still showed activity in this ventral tegmental area, a little factory near the base of the brain that pumps out the dopamine and gives you that elation. Um, we still found activity in a brain region linked with feelings of deep attachment to the partner. Uh, you don't stop loving somebody just because they dumped you. We found uh, activity in three brain regions linked with addiction, hmm. particularly the primary brain region. It's called the nucleus accumbens that is associated with all of the addictions. So you still crave the person. And we even found activity in a brain region linked with physical pain. Not only the, the distress that goes along with pain, but physical pain. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the brain is really in overdrive. And um, 
to conquer all of that, you really have to treat it as an addiction. Uh, throw out the cards and letters, uh, don't write, don't call, don't show up, uh, uh, assemble what you know about the situation, uh, create a story. And after you've built that story, then you can throw it out. And finally, of course, uh, you put your life back together and you move on. And as a matter of fact, we've proven that in the brain. Uh, when we put these rejected people into the brain scanner, we ended up finding that um, those people who had been rejected quite a while ago, let's say several months as opposed to several days, we find less and less activity in this brain region linked with attachment. As time goes by, feelings of attachment and probably romantic love also begin to decline. So time does heal. So Helen, my last question for you is about a sort of the science of love, right? And I'm wondering, like, even with all of the advances in technology and all of our abilities to measure brain activity, are we, are we, are we still at a place where we've just scratched the scientific surface? We've just scratched the scientific uh, surface, but we've come a long way. I mean, you know, when I was growing up, uh, people believed that romantic love was part of the supernatural. Yeah. We've proven that it's not, that this is a very specific brain system, that it is triggered under certain circumstances, that you can get over it if you treat it as an addiction and do certain things. We have more and more cognitive control over this powerful survival mechanism. That's Helen Fisher. She's a biological anthropologist. You can see all of Helen's talks at TED.com. And by the way, Helen actually inspired our next guest to try to use neuroscience to fall out of love, to get rid of her feelings for an ex-boyfriend. Yeah, I wanted it out. I don't want to spend, like, all my good years obsessing on this dude who I can't win with. This is Dessa. She's a musician, and you're actually hearing one of her songs. And for a long time, Dessa was desperately trying to move on from an unhealthy relationship. It was one of those volatile ones, you know, where it's almost, like, difficult to to put the relationship up against the tape measure to figure out how long it lasted because it was on and off for so long. <laughs> but I would say that we first met and fell into love when we were 21 years old. And we were still tempted to try to give it another shot, like, 14 years later. Wow. Hello, it's only me, I know and was it, like, how would you characterize your relationship? The most confident description that I could give it would be um, passionate, playful, unconventional, I think. I would also say it was bitterly... Sad, hmm. um, jealous, lonely. And I think that I've learned about the smallest of my feelings. Like, I really got to meet the worst of me in that relationship. So here you are in a situation that I think millions of people can relate to, right? The, the irrationality of being in love with somebody who you know is not right, is not the right person. Yes, <laughs> Did you feel trapped? I felt I felt spun out. I felt sad. And I also felt sort of embarrassed. Like, it did not jive with my feminist intuitions to be so torn up over a dude for so long. Hello, 
It started to get harder. So it's like even the, if you can imagine being on stage and it's loud and there are bright lights and um, everybody's had a few shots of whiskey, like that bombast and that um, that big victory feeling, both hands in the air and the big bow at the end, it was just getting harder to do because I knew that when I got off stage, I was going to be so sad again. Here's more from Dessa on the TED stage. And even though I knew it wasn't doing either of us any good, I just couldn't figure out how to put the love down. Then, drinking white wine one night, I saw a TED Talk by a woman named Dr. Helen Fisher. And she said that in her work, she'd been able to map the coordinates of love in the human brain. And I thought, well, if I could find my love in my brain, maybe I could get it out. So I went to Twitter. Anybody got access to an fMRI lab, like at midnight or something? I'll trade for backstage passes and whiskey. <laughs> and that's Dr. Cheryl Ullman, who works at the University of Minnesota's Center for Magnetic Resonance Research. She took me up on it. I explained the Dr. Fisher's uh, protocol, and we decided to recreate it with a sample size of one, me. <laughs> so I got decked out in a pair of uh, forest green scrubs, and I was laid on a gurney and wheeled into an fMRI machine. If you're unfamiliar with that technology, essentially an fMRI machine is a big tubular magnet that tracks the progress of deoxygenated iron in your blood. So it's essentially figuring out what parts of your brain are making the biggest metabolic demand at any given moment. And in that way, it can figure out which structures are associated with a task, like tapping your finger, for example, will always light up the same region. Or in my case, looking at pictures of your ex-boyfriend, and then looking at pictures of a dude who just sort of resembled my ex-boyfriend, but for whom I had no strong feelings. He was the control. And when I left the machine, we had these really high-resolution images of my brain. After she'd had time to analyze the data with her team and a couple of partners, Andrea and Phil, Cheryl sent me an image, a single slide. It was my brain in cross-section, with one bright dot of activity that represented my feelings for this dude. I had known I was in love, and that's the whole reason I was going to these outrageous lengths. But having an image that proved it felt like such a vindication, like, yeah, it's all in my head, but now I know exactly where. <laughs> and I also felt like an assassin who had her mark. That was what I had to annihilate. Wow, so there was like a, a red beacon just coming out of this part of your brain when you saw photos of your ex-boyfriend, which I guess meant that your feelings for him resided in that very spot. It was in exactly the places that Dr. Fisher's study had thought. So, like, the anterior cingulate, yes, yeah. and the ventrotegmental region. And I started to cry in a coffee shop because I, I don't know. It was really emotionally salient. All right, so you've identified the part of your brain that is in love, and now you know. You know where it is, and maybe you can, you know, do something about it. Maybe you can actually zap it, sort of. Right. I ended up putting out another call on Twitter. Um, I knew that I wanted to try to change that dot in my head. It was almost like, like I imagine, like, you know, PX90 ads mm -hmm. in magazines? Yeah. How there's, like, the before picture? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I had my before picture. So you have yes. your before picture, 
And you're looking to go to your after picture, like the picture of your brain without the red dot in it. Exactly. Yeah. So I ended up um, I ended up working with this woman named Penny Jean Gracefire, and she was a clinician for neurofeedback. So essentially, you've got all these all these sensors affixed to your scalp, mm-hmm. and they're measuring the electricity that your brain is generating, like right through the bone and through the hair, so you can see what parts of your brain are active in real time. She'd done some research on like what parts of the brain were responsible for emotional regulation. And she thought, okay, I think we should target these areas in your in your head <laughs> to try to see if we can get them to be a, a little less vigilant, to chill out. And we worked at my dad's house because he has a flat screen TV. So I could see my brain big. I could see like waves of color passing over this image of my brain that indicated which parts were hyperactive, which parts were hypoactive. And then the way that she described it, which I found helpful, was like, we're not trying to blunt your brain's ability to fall in love. We are trying to do is like analogous to the way that you you might train a muscle at the gym. You're trying to strengthen it. You're trying to make it more flexible. But really what you're trying to do is, is make sure that it can respond in a way that's appropriate to its circumstance. Yeah. So whatever my brain would dip towards lower levels of activity, yeah. not only could I see it, but I could, I could hear it. And every time my brain operated in that healthy threshold, I got a little run of harp or vibraphone music. And I just watched my brain rotate at roughly the speed of a Euro machine on my dad's flat screen TV. She said the learning would be essentially unconscious. But then I thought about the other things that I had learned without actively engaging my conscious mind. When you ride a bike, I don't really know what, like, my left calf muscle's doing or or how my latissimus dorsi knows to engage when I wobble to the right. The body just learns. And similarly, like, Pavlov's dogs probably don't know a lot about, like, protein structures or the waveform of a ringing bell. But they salivate nonetheless because the body paired the stimuli. Finished the sessions, went back to Dr. Cheryl Ullman's fMRI machine, and we repeated the protocol. And after she had time to analyze that second set of data, she said, dude A's dominance of your brain seems to essentially have been eradicated. I think this is the desired result, comma. Yes, question mark? It wasn't the case that um, that I felt like I was now a, like a loveless robot. You know what I mean? Right. I didn't feel like Spock. And it wasn't the case that I had forgotten anything, if that makes sense. Like I hadn't erased any memories. Mm-hmm. But I did feel some relief. You did feel like you extracted some of those feelings of love, those strong feelings of love? The compulsion. Yeah. I just wasn't so wrapped around the axle. I wasn't, you know? And I wasn't crying on it like I used to. And I wasn't... Um, I don't know. I just had felt so, like, obsessively compulsed, you know? Yeah. And, I mean, obviously, like, I'm a sample size of one, right? But on the other hand, to be frank, it's like I have been trying to get over this so many ways for so many years. Um, That, yeah, I haven't gone back to that place that I was beforehand of feeling really kind of out of, like, out of my own control. Does it it make you feel more open to meeting another person? Oh, interesting. I mean, okay, I don't know if this is, this might be wishful thinking on my part, but 
before this, I thought, you have to get over this guy um, completely if you're ever going to have an honest relationship again. Right. And I think that makes sense. Like, you don't want to, you don't want to hamstring a new relationship by being cluttered with some strong old feeling. But by this point, I think the task is to be like as generous to your next partner and to yourself. Be frank about how much like emotional capacity you have. Hmm. And I don't know. I have the feeling that, um, that the man that I love next will have some passionate loves in his rearview mirror as well. That's the musician, Dessa. You can find her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, in and out of love. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, TIAA. President and CEO Roger Ferguson knows that planning for retirement is a journey with many different paths. You've got to get them to retirement before you can help them through it. And that does mean both saving all along the way for retirement, but it means using you know, other products and services wisely around all the other financial issues that confront people as they get older and older. To find out if you're eligible or to learn more, go to TIAA.org slash never run out. Guarantees are subject to the claims-paying ability of TIAA. Annuities are issued by Teachers Insurance and Annuity Association of America, New York, New York. How do you make an older parent struggling with health problems happy? I tell him I was getting engaged to a war photographer and that he and I just bought a parakeet named Gino. This week on NPR's Invisibilia, what happens when the roles we're used to performing with our loved ones get mixed up? It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, in and out of love. We just heard about falling out of unhealthy love, but what about love that's dangerous and abusive? Everybody knows a punch is wrong, but if somebody punched you on the first date, that would be the last date, right? Hmm. That's not what happens. What happens is you start out adored and you think this is it. But you miss some of the signs that it's not really love. It's more about control and possession Mm. and being whisked off your feet is not such a good thing if you're being tethered to this new person and you're being pulled away from everyone else that loves you. This is Katie Hood. And I'm the CEO of the One Love Foundation. And Katie spends a lot of time teaching young people how to create healthy relationships and to notice the warning signs of abusive ones. One Love was started in 2010 uh, to honor the memory of a young woman named Yardley Love who was beaten to death by her ex-boyfriend that year. Uh, Her family was as in shock as anybody could be that this had happened, and they really hadn't understood that she'd been in an abusive relationship. Hmm. Uh, As time passed, they realized that had a domestic violence expert been in the room, they would have understood the signs that she was in an unhealthy and increasingly dangerous relationship. Katie Hood explains some of these signs from the TED stage. Maybe it's when your new boyfriend or girlfriend says, I love you faster than you were ready for or start showing up everywhere, texting and calling a lot. Maybe they're impatient when you're slow to respond, even though they know you had other things going on that day. 
It's important to remember that it's not how a relationship starts that matters; it's how it evolves. Are you comfortable with the pace of intimacy? Do you feel like you have space and room to breathe? Are your requests respected? A second marker is isolation. We talk a lot about isolation. In my opinion, this is like the most missed sign,、mm-hmm. um, and it's missed because it's coded in things like. You guys just like each other so much. You want to spend all of your time together, or I just don't want you to be with other people because I just want to be with you. I think about you all the time, and、right. some of these are normal feelings in a new relationship. But again, a lot of what we're trying to teach is you really have to be listening to your gut and thinking about: Are you comfortable with that? Do you feel pulled away from your support networks?、Um, because you know, when I think about characteristics of people who become abusive. I think this need for sort of control and possession, and having you tethered to them as opposed to others, is really at the center of it.、Um, so we're really trying to teach that the normal instinct to want to spend all your time with this new person, but pay attention to when it doesn't feel comfortable anymore. As the honeymoon period begins to fade, extreme jealousy can creep in. Conversations that used to be fun and lighthearted turn mean and embarrassing. Maybe your partner makes fun of you in a way that hurts. Or maybe they tell stories and jokes for laughs at your expense. When you try to explain that your feelings have been hurt, they shut you down and accuse you of overreacting. As tension rises, so does volatility. Tearful, frustrated fights followed by emotional makeups. Hateful and hurtful comments like "You're worthless. I'm not even sure why I'm with you," followed quickly by apologies and promises it will never happen again. By this point, you've been so conditioned to this relationship roller coaster that you may not realize how unhealthy and maybe even dangerous your relationship has become. Hmm. I think for most of us, when we have a friend or somebody we care about who who is in this kind of relationship that we can we sort of think we can identify from the outside, our instinct is to be like, "Get out! Like, what are you <laughs> doing? This person is so bad for you." And I think oftentimes the the person who is the on the receiving end of, of much of the abuse knows that they understand that intellectually that this is not healthy, but something prevents it from ending. I think it's a few things.、Um, we've educated you know almost seven hundred fifty thousand kids over the last five years through in person workshops, and the number one question is always how do I help a friend?、Hmm. Um, and the first answer is. You know, a person who's in an abusive relationship spends a lot of time listening to this other person belittle them, berate them, tell them what to do. If you mimic that person's behavior, you're not helping. So you may not think you're belittling them when you go, "Are you crazy? This guy is crazy, right?"、Mm. You're not being supportive. It comes across as sort of the same sort of dictatorial statement, right? And I would say frequently, you're definitely not sharing how bad it really is with people on the outside. So sometimes friends miss the signs.、Um, I, I just I think in general, what happens in an abusive relationship, and I, I frequently refer to it as a rabbit hole. You lose your footing. Yeah. You sort of feel paralyzed. I've talked to more people、uh, than I know who just feel like they can't take the next step, and so you may be telling them and offering support, but on average, it takes seven times for a person to leave an abusive relationship. It's not easy, which is why our focus on teaching the signs ahead of time, so that people avoid the rabbit hole, so that they have clear sight coming in, because once you're down the rabbit hole, there's no doubt it's it's much harder.、Hmm. 
The biggest thing in my work that I'm continually surprised by is just we have so much stigma around this issue. I think I think about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs a lot. You mm. know, safety, safety is such an important part of it. Yeah. And I think the idea that someone we love could hurt us or abuse us, it's it's impossible for us to think about. Doesn't make and sense. if you've survived yeah. it, no, it makes no sense. And it, and if that's true, then it sort of threatens everything, right? I mean, everything in life feels a little unstable if that's true. And so it's easier to think it happens to someone else somewhere else than to think it could happen to us or someone we love. And by the way, if you've survived abuse, many times you've survived by like putting it in a box, putting it on the shelf, walking away and never talking about it again. <laughs> because it's deeply, it's deeply harming. But what we're optimistic about is if this is an issue that affects so many of us, abuse. And if the level above that, unhealthy relationships, affects all of us, then it seems like there is the possibility to make some major impact and drive change. That's Katie Hood. She's the CEO of the One Love Foundation. You can see her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about falling in and out of love. And for a lot of relationships, the end point is when one person has fallen out of love and the other is still desperately holding on. There is some kind of debate about whether love should actually be classified as an addiction. This is psychologist Guy Winch. It's a little cynical, and it's a little probably unpopular. But if we're just looking at what happens in the brain, then it might need to be um, regulated by the FDA. (laughs) Okay, he's not actually serious about the FDA, but Guy knows how addictive love can be because for the past 20 years, he's counseled hundreds of patients through heartbreak. There's nothing else in terms of a human experience that can make a perfectly reasonable person go absolutely crazy. (laughs) And you will see the biggest possible deviations from normal behavior when somebody (laughs) is heartbroken. And it's hard to think of another human experience that would cause that kind of extremes. But with heartbreak, you see it all the time. You know, I know people who literally stayed in bed for weeks at a time. Mm. They don't go to work. Or they go to work but spend the entire day in the bathroom crying. (laughs) And then to try and get to the person, to try and change the person's mind, they will call and call and call. The person's not answering or they've blocked them. They will spend the entire night online trying to see if they can get to them or their social media page through some avenue or outlet. The desperation people feel is profound. And that's because on a chemical level, romantic love really is kind of like a drug. Guy Winch continues this idea from the TED stage. Brain studies have shown that the withdrawal of romantic love activates the same mechanisms in our brain that get activated when addicts are withdrawing from substances like cocaine or opioids. Almost every one of us will have her heart broken. My patient Kathy planned her wedding when she was in middle school. She would meet her future husband by age 27, get engaged a year later, and get married a year after that. But when Kathy turned 27, she found a lump in her breast. She went through 
many months of harsh chemotherapy and painful surgeries, and then she found a lump in her other breast and had to do it all over again. Kathy recovered, though, and soon afterwards she met Rich and fell in love. The relationship was everything she hoped it would be. Six months later, after a lovely weekend in New England, Kathy knew he was going to propose, and she could barely contain her excitement. But Rich did not propose to Kathy that night. He broke up with her. Kathy was shattered. Her heart was truly broken, and she now faced yet another recovery. But five months after the breakup, Kathy still couldn't stop thinking about Rich. Her heart was still very much broken. The question is, why? Why was this incredibly strong and determined woman unable to marshal the same emotional resources that got her through four years of cancer treatments? Why do the same coping mechanisms that get us through all kinds of life challenges fail us so miserably when our heart gets broken? What I've learned is this: when your heart is broken, the same instincts you ordinarily rely on. Will time and again lead you down the wrong path? You simply cannot trust what your mind is telling you. Heartbreak can make even the most reasonable and measured of us come up with mysteries and conspiracy theories where none exist. Kathy became convinced something must have happened during her romantic getaway with Rich that soured him on the relationship, and she became obsessed with figuring out what that was. And so she spent countless hours going through every minute of that weekend in her mind, searching her memory for clues that were not there. He simply wasn't in love. Heartbreak is far more insidious than we realize. I mean, it's amazing. We can think of so many challenging human experiences, like. Battling a life-threatening ailment or dealing with a crushing injury, right? And yet, as you describe in your talk, there is something about heartbreak that is, as you say, more insidious than we realize. It's actually much more insidious because the pain it generates is so severe. When when you're dealing with a terrible disease or a terrible injury, or even if you're grieving a loss, the pain certainly can be very severe initially. Um, but the difference between emotional pain and physical pain is such that if you and I discussed the time you broke your leg and you described it to me in detail, one thing will not happen, and that is your leg will not hurt from the description. Yeah. But emotional pain is different. If you, 20 years after the fact, tell me in detail about the time your heart was broken, you will reactivate that. Yeah, a little bit. You will be scratching whatever's left of that. Heartbreak is a master manipulator. The ease with which it gets our mind to do the absolute opposite of what we need in order to recover is remarkable. We spend hours remembering their smile, how great they made us feel, that time we hiked up the mountain and made love under the stars. All that does is make our loss feel more painful. We know that, yet we still allow our mind to cycle through one greatest hit after another, like we were being held hostage by our own passive-aggressive Spotify playlist. 
heartbreak will make those thoughts pop into your mind, and so to avoid idealizing, you have to balance them out by remembering their frown, not just their smile, how bad they made you feel, the fact that after the lovemaking, you got lost coming down the mountain, argued like crazy, and didn't speak for two days. What I tell my patients is to compile an exhaustive list of all the ways the person was wrong for you, all the bad qualities, all the pet peeves, and then keep it on your phone. <laughs> and once you have your list, you have to use it. When I hear even a hint of idealizing or the faintest whiff of nostalgia in a session, I go, phone, please. Your mind will try to tell you they were perfect, but they were not, and neither was the relationship. And if you want to get over them, you have to remind yourself of that frequently. Now, that is not to vilify the person, but that's just to balance out the idealizing, to remind yourself of all the times that you felt miserable because of them, to remind yourself of all the times you thought, maybe I should break up because this is just not making me happy. How much control do we have in getting over heartbreak? I mean, do we have 100% control over it or 90% control over it? Can, it? can it even be quantified? That's a very important question because what most people do when they're heartbroken is nothing. They just ride it out. Mm. We cannot let our mind just do its thing. Our mind might be the most brilliant piece of machinery in the universe, but it requires adult supervision. Mm. And that means that we have to assert what the right things are for us to do and not do. We have to battle thoughts that are unuseful or harmful or damaging to us. When our mind says, oh, you know, I know you're not supposed to be in touch with the person that much, but wasn't her second cousin's wedding this weekend? I'm sure if I spent seven to eight hours on Instagram, I could find some kind of images of it from other people. When our mind has that brilliant idea, we need to take over and go, that's not going to be useful <laughs> for me. As tempting as it is, and it is, we then have to find ways to distract ourselves, call a friend, start watching a movie, go for a run, do something that prevents us from doing that thing that our mind thought was a great idea, but actually is a terrible one. So in terms of how much control we have over our recovery from heartbreak, however much we have, we need to assert. We have to have the fight with our mind. We might win some and lose some, but the fight has to be had. That's Guy Winch. He's the author of the book, How to Fix a Broken Heart. You can see both of his talks at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show, In and Out of Love, this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out TED.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Mishkanpour, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motasham, James Delahousie, J.C. Howard, and Katie Monteleone, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Kiara Brown. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Michelle Quint. 
I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. <laughs>